You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, episode 28 of the podcast for season three, episode 93 of the podcast overall. Today we're going to talk about whether it's more important to be kind or right, and we're also going to talk about First Peter. I have the honor and the privilege and the opportunity this evening to speak for about 15 minutes to the youth at Summit View Community Church about First Peter. We've just wrapped up First Peter as a church. The pastors have been preaching through First Peter for several months. And on Wednesday nights when youth group meets, we are going through or have been going through First Peter along with the rest of the church. The pastors are preaching through a few verses, a selection of verses every Sunday. And then when the small groups meet, when the adults in their small groups meet, they're discussing those sections of verses that were preached on, asking questions, unpacking what this means from a practical application standpoint, where are the challenges in applying these things, where are the opportunities for us to become more faithful or to honor God better by internalizing these truths in his word, by meditating on his word. And then the youth also, why not? Why not as a youth group, as a middle school and a high school ministry, go through these passages that are being preached on to get these kids to be engaged, to be listening, to be paying attention so that they have something to say about it. But before we get into First Peter, I want to talk about a question my wife posed to our family at the dinner table on Saturday. While my dad was here, all of our kids were sitting around the table, and my wife and I, and we had my dad as a guest, and my wife posed the question that she had already posed to the children earlier in the week after she saw a video on Instagram. And the video on Instagram was some child actor, some star of some TV show probably, or some movie, something that's being promoted here recently, whose marketing people also presumably talked with her. Her agent probably talked with her and said, you should do a little Instagram video to kind of get your profile up and get you out there and get people paying attention to who you are. Do you have something to say? You have something important to contribute to the public discourse. And so what this girl said to all of her followers, however many there are, I'm not familiar with her, is that it's more important to be kind than it is to be right. So what do we think about that? My wife asked our children earlier in the week. And then on Saturday, while we're sitting around, she wanted to get them to explain what their take was on what this girl had said on Instagram. And she wanted to get my take. She wanted us to talk about it and discuss it. So God bless my wife for facilitating this conversation, for bringing this topic to the fore in our household, in our family. And I was interested. I was I was really intrigued and uh, I guess proud of my kids for some of the thoughts that they shared with regards to this posited statement of values. For one thing, my oldest son, 
pointed out that it really comes down to who's defining what is kind and what is right. That's a great point, Josiah. It does come down to who is defining the terms here. What is right and what is kindness? And also, what does kindness have to do with being right? What does being right have to do with being kind? There is a relationship there. So kudos to Josiah for pointing that out. And also to Solomon. Solomon chimed in and said, you know, if I have a friend who is dressing in a way that is just kind of ridiculous and embarrassing and they don't realize it, maybe they have a dirty shirt or they have something on their face or whatever, is it kind for me to let them go on embarrassing themselves or would it be right and kind for me to point out that maybe they should go change their shirt or go clean their face or something like that. And that's obviously a nod to conversations that we have in my house. My boys and my daughter, they go out and they play outside and they sometimes get dirty, if you can believe it. Kids, sometimes when you let them, will play in the dirt and they'll get something on their face, they'll get something on their shirt. And their first thought is not, I should stop everything right now and go get myself cleaned up. I should go get a shower. I should go get a bath. I should go put on some clean clothes. I should go clean my face. The first thought very often is not at all about that unless you point it out, unless you say, hey, listen, we're about to go somewhere or we're about to have guests over. You might want to clean yourself up there before you embarrass yourself, before somebody sees you. Sometimes it's okay to have a dirty face and have dirty hands and dirty feet and dirty clothes, and that's as may be, but sometimes it's more appropriate. Like, for instance, when you're going to go to a Good Friday service or you're going to go to a Sunday morning Easter service, it's more appropriate to take a moment to clean yourself up, to respect the people that you're going to be with, to respect yourself, to encourage other people to show respect for you, to take seriously what you're saying. You wash your face. And there's also a component to all of that which has to do with honoring God. I'm going to clean my face. I'm going to put on clean clothes because I want to come before the Lord in reverence, respecting that this is my God and that he is holy. And it isn't to say that if I have a dirty face, I'm unholy. But it is to say, symbolically, if I clean my face, that is a way in which I am showing, I'm indicating that I respect God because I'm trying to come and present myself before him in a clean way, in a pure-hearted way. So the question of whether it's more important to be kind or to be right, I find interesting in light of a lot of books I've been reading here lately, and I don't know, maybe you guys get tired of me talking about all the books I'm reading. Maybe I get tired of mentioning, hey, I'm reading this book here lately. I don't want it to sound like I'm bragging. I do want to be encouraging others around me to be reading, to be more intentional, to be checking these things out, to be thinking deeply, and to be reading people who also think deeply and check these things out. That rubs off on you after a while. These people are thinking through things, they're researching, they're trying to organize the data. And if you also are going and hearing what they have to say and reading what they have to write, you might get an idea or two about what's going on and 
how to best honor God, how to best love the people around you, how to navigate your life circumstances in a way that is wise, in a way that is peaceful, in a way that is a good steward of the privilege and the blessing that you've been given in life. So along those lines, some of the books I've been reading recently have been trying to trace the origin of the modern philosophical zeitgeist, the spirit of this age. How did we get this idea that people have a gender other than what's obvious when they're born? Where did that come from? Where did we get this idea that people are born homosexuals or transgender? Where did we get this idea that if somebody at five years old says they like playing with Barbie dolls instead of Tonka trucks, they must be a girl trapped in a boy's body? Where did we get this idea that not all women have periods because some women supposedly have penises? And I'm sorry, if you're listening to this with children present and it offends you for me to say the term or to use the term, if I'm being too graphic, I apologize, but there's just no way around it in my mind except for being very blunt. A woman has certain parts. A man has certain parts. When my children were born, in a couple of cases, we didn't get an ultrasound beforehand because it was just, hey, let's be surprised. Or if we did get an ultrasound, we didn't want to know the gender. We wanted to be surprised. Is this a boy? Is it a girl? We'll find out when they get here. Because in some respect, we'd already had a couple of boys. And we were hoping so much for a girl that it was our way of mitigating against being disappointed. If God gives us another boy, we're supposed to have another boy. God has a purpose for this boy being in the world. And we don't want to reject that purpose or kick against the goad. We don't want to be discontented or act like God messed up in giving us another son. It just so happens we have six sons. And maybe God has rewarded our desire to not just have a boy and a girl, one for her, one for me, and then be done. Maybe God has rewarded us for our desire to be content and to be good stewards and to be faithful with however many children he gives us by giving us six sons. Now, in ages past and in many parts of the world, even still today, you have a lot of sons and that is a sign of God's favor. That is a sign of your strength as a man and as a household. Look how many sons I have. I have all these sons and someday they'll grow up and they'll go into business and they'll go and they'll sit in the city council or they'll go into government or they will become warriors. And my house is strong. I have six sons. In our culture, that's not so much the mindset in the main. The mainstream culture thinks that we shouldn't have children. In fact, some people think that it's immoral to have children because we're overpopulating, we're overconsuming, we're killing the planet because there's too many people consuming too much, we're being too fruitful, we're multiplying too much, we're filling the earth too much, we're subduing the earth too much. We're reflecting God's glory. We're obeying God too much, apparently. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that isn't always easy, but you can make decisions. Like sometimes, for instance, saying, 
We don't need to find out what the gender is ahead of time. We're going to focus on thanking God and being faithful, whether he gives us another boy, whether he gives us another girl, whether this child has disabilities, if they have some condition that makes it very difficult and very different for us to raise them, or if they're perfectly healthy, if they're strong, if they're more energetic than we are, which has been the case in most of our children's uh, upbringing thus far. They're more energetic than we feel sometimes. But in a day and age where gender is a social construct, where sexuality is fluid, where people are rewarded for coming out as some deviant, you're rewarded and you're told that you're so brave if you reject heteronormativity, if you are trans, if you are bi, if you are queer, if you are gay, if you're a lesbian, you're patted on the back, parades are thrown for you. You're held up on this pedestal like this is the very best representative of our culture, you. You're confused, and that's exactly what we want. We want you to be confused. And is everybody paying attention to how much we like it when you're confused? That's a good boy. We're going to reward you, or a good girl, or a good whatever you are, right? In that kind of a day and age, I'm reading books that are trying to unpack how did we get to that seeming like a good idea for so many people. It doesn't seem like a good idea to me because I fear the Lord, and I read in Genesis that God created them male and female. In the beginning, he created them in his image for a purpose. And we see repeatedly throughout the text a wicked, rebellious streak where God makes us for a certain purpose and we reject that purpose and we resent that purpose and we blame God and we turn it back on God and we're bitter towards God because we don't like that. We don't want God's purpose. We want our purpose. We've got a better idea. We're going to do it differently just because God wanted it this way as a way of trying to vie for dominance and control and to become gods ourselves, to become our own God and to become God to those around us. I'm reading these books that talk about self-expression being the greatest virtue. The worst thing you can do to somebody is to get in the way of their authentic self-expression. And so that's why Christianity is being attacked. That's why it's being driven from the public space. Because if you are coming with a Christian argument for repentance, thus saith the Lord, repent. The Lord is at hand. A voice crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. If you're saying that, you're going to make somebody who's trying to express their authentic true self feel bad. We can't have that. That's the trouble with people is they're repressing these emotions and those repressed emotions, according to Freud, make them feel very bad, make them feel bad and guilty and ashamed and embarrassed. Like Dr. Spock said, you're going to hurt their self-esteem if you discipline them. So we can't have that, even though his son raised the way that Dr. Spock thought best, committed suicide. He was so aimless. He was so confused about what he was supposed to do with his life. I'm trying to unpack where we got these ideas from, and I'm finding this common theme that 
explains why love has been redefined in such a radical way. If I love somebody, I have to affirm their self-expression, irregardless of how moral it is. Right now, they can't express themselves in human blood after they've just murdered the closest person to them. I can't affirm that because that's still frowned upon, but for how much longer? You have radical environmentalists who think that we're killing the planet, who want to equate animal life with human life, who want to pass legislation that says you can't assist a cow, for instance, in birthing its calf without consent, which is another way of saying you can't do it at all. You can't do it because you can't get consent because somehow that's raping the animal if you are helping this animal to give birth because animals are people, apparently. People are animals. It's logically consistent, but it is completely false. It's insane. It's depraved. It's perverse. It is wicked. So when somebody who speaks for the zeitgeist on behalf of their agent on behalf of the movie studio, the TV studio, the media company, whose executives probably have children who've come out as bi and trans and queer and gay and lesbian just so their parent can get special status in the company and in the culture. They can ride this wave of popular enthusiasm to the very top they're going to get this little girl to go on Instagram and to tell us all how important it is that we're an ally to some very confused children, to some very confused adults. We're going to, rather than challenging their conception of the world and themselves against what God says, we're going to affirm it. We're going to nod in agreement. We're going to give cover and approval to these things and become just as guilty as the people doing them by approving of these things, by affirming these things. And in reading these books that chart this philosophy, this historical trend, this decay and train wreck in slow motion, which is happening before our very eyes, I find that the word kindness being defined by the people who think that self-expression, self-actualization is the greatest good and that there is no objective truth and objective good, kindness to those people means whatever they want it to mean. The irony is that the question of is it better to be kind or is it better to be right is predicated, however you answer it, by the idea that there is such a thing as better. What is better? You've lost the argument. You've defeated your own point if you're saying that it's more right to be kind than it is to be right. That's what better means, right? Right? It's better to be kind than it is to be right. Well, where do you get your scale? Where do you get your spectrum? How do you plot the number line? Zero is this, and 100 is that. Well, that's a statement of values. That's a statement of truth. That's a statement of morality. That's a statement of 
what is righteous and what is wicked, what is good and what is bad, what is true and what is false. And yet, by saying it's more important to be kind than it is to be right, you're saying that there is no rightness, there is no wrongness, there's only kindness. Is it right to be kind? Ooh, now you're in a pickle. How do you explain that? How do you justify your position? Good luck with that. My answer to the question at the dinner table that my wife posed was that in order for me to have any responsibility to be kind, there has to be a standard of right conduct. There has to be some authority, some transcendent standard which says that it's right to be kind. Why am I going to be kind if it's not right? Or if it doesn't matter, if there's an ambiguity, there's a neutrality, if it's more profitable to me to express myself in a way that's not kind, who are you to say that I need to be kind? You're interfering with my self-expression. Good luck with that. Moving on, I'm speaking this evening on First Peter. I have 15 minutes, and I'm worried that 15 minutes is too long and not long enough all at the same time. I am a bit long-winded. It took a while, but I have learned to trim down my content on this podcast, for instance, from an hour when I first started for the first season and three quarters, maybe. The very tail end of season two, I made it my goal to stop being stubborn, to start listening to good advice, and to trim my episodes down to 30 minutes. I'm still working on that. Sometimes they're 35, sometimes they're closer to 40, but I've come a long ways. It has been an exercise in self-discipline, in me trying to not just express whatever pops into my head with no discipline, with no organization, with no consideration for my audience, but to prioritize what is it that I need to say on the front end if you're only going to listen for the first five minutes, the first 10 minutes, the first 20 minutes, the first 30 minutes. Are you even around still at 45 minutes? Or did you even start the episode if you saw that it was going to be an hour long and you don't have an hour today? You have 10 minutes. You have 15 minutes. You might have 10 minutes and 15 minutes later on too. But I have 15 minutes tonight and I'm going to be trying to summarize what it is that we learned this year in First Peter as the youth group was going through it, the middle school section of the youth group was going through First Peter. A couple of interesting things to point out. One is that as you read through First Peter, you see him addressing those who are in exile. The exile elect, the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. What a beautiful introduction to the letter. Hi, I'm Peter. Who am I writing to? The elect exiles of the dispersion. In other words, there's persecution happening and you guys have been spread out all over the world as we know it. You're all over the place. You're in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. I'm talking to you, and I want to encourage you. And I want to remind you who you are. 
And who is God? This isn't just about you. I'm not going to just be kind to you in a vacuum, in a godless sort of a way. I need to remind you, if I'm going to be kind to you, who you are in relation to God. Why were you dispersed? What should you do about that? You're being persecuted. You're going to suffer. But so did Christ. You don't see this Christ, but he loves you. And you love him. And you love him without having seen him. You need to look forward to the day when you will see him. And you will see the fulfillment of these promises in which you hope. Peter reminds his audience his brothers and sisters in Christ, what their salvation is predicated on. It's predicated on the work of Christ. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That's an elevation. Angels are jealous of you. Did you know that? If you have salvation and these angels have fallen, they have no hope of being reconciled to God. You do. Angels are jealous of your situation, your opportunity here to be made right with God through Christ. He goes on. He tells them to be sober-minded a couple of times. He says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Wow, that's a tall order, Peter. How am I going to do that? I don't know, but I need to find out, don't I? Purify your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You've been exiled. You've been driven from your birthplace, from your home, from your native land, into the far-flung regions of the world as we know it. You're exiles. You're out of place. You're strangers in a strange land. Everything feels like it's in flux. You're being persecuted. You're facing trials, various trials. You've been grieved. You have been grieved. And I don't fault you for being grieved. But please remember that this grieving is not the end. Remember the context. Remember why it is that you first believed. What prompted the persecution? Your faith in Christ. You believed in Christ and those around you who did not believe in Christ, who rejected Christ, who are ignorant, spoke evil of you and tried to destroy you. He goes on. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why are you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession? Why did he call you out? Why has he redeemed you? Why has he saved you? So that you can proclaim the goodness of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain 
from the passions of the flesh, wage war against them because they're waging war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles here, not just meaning non-Jews, but actually symbolically meaning non-Christians. So that when, not if, when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, they're going to speak evil of you. They're going to do evil things to you because they hate what God is doing in you. And you're going to repay good for their evil. And you're going to win some of them over by your good conduct, by being blameless. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. See also Romans 13. This is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That was such a timely passage for us to be meditating on this past year as governments the world over are depriving their people of essential liberties here in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we supposedly hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We saw the disenfranchisement of the American people because there was this terror of death, this fear of death, this fear of man. And we read this and it says that evil will be spoken of us, against us. And it says we are to keep ourselves blameless and that we're supposed to subject ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. There's obviously a caveat here. If you look at Peter's life, you look at Paul's life, the proof of whether you have submitted yourself and subjected yourself to every human institution, whether you've honored those around you, is not how nice they are to you. It's not whether it's always hunky-dory. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense that he promises us persecution. He promises us we will be spoken evil against. We will be slandered. Evil men who've rejected Christ will try to do evil things to us, to destroy us, or to discourage us from continuing to serve God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Don't fear the emperor, don't fear the brotherhood, don't fear everyone, fear God. And as you fear God, you'll be able to love and honor even the very vile, awful, malicious people around you, even the mostly noble, mostly kind, sometimes frail and fallible brotherhood around you. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In other words, you will suffer unjustly. And how you respond in the midst of suffering unjustly is an opportunity to honor God and to love that person, even the person who is treating you unjustly. We read about Christ here from Peter. He reminds us of the example that Jesus set for us. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If Christ in his perfection can be reviled, so can you. But also, if Christ in his glory, in his great elevated condition, as Lord of all creation, can submit himself to the Father's will, even when that means being treated unjustly, if he can be blameless even in the midst of being slandered and abused and maligned and opposed and schemed against and ultimately arrested unjustly, beaten, mocked, insulted, spat on, crucified, humiliated. If Christ can do that, then why do we think we're too good? Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, if your husbands do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman is the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this is what you were called to, that you may be blessed. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You could also say here that the Gentiles don't understand when you're not so afraid of a virus that you're willing to stop going to church indefinitely. You're willing to stop loving people, caring for them, checking on them, seeing how they're doing, meeting together, encouraging them, building them up. You're not willing to live in fear. You're not willing to be silent when other people are being oppressed. The Gentiles are confused when you don't do what they do, when you don't respond the way they do. You don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's so much good in here in First Peter. The overarching theme is you're going to be mistreated. You're being persecuted. You're being maligned, slandered, christ was too. And he set us an example, and you need to remember who it is that you're living for. You're not living for yourself, and you're not living for these people that are trying to abuse you. You're living for God. You're not following their example. You're following Christ's example. Don't be panicked. Don't be timid. Don't be enraged. Snap back with the first thought that comes into your mind, even if it's wrong, even if it's not true, even if it's hurtful, even if it dishonors God. No, be sober, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
Keep loving one another, since love covers a multitude of sins, as 1 Peter 4, verse 8 says. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's so much good here. I don't know how I'm going to be able to say what I want to say about this in 15 minutes this evening, but wish me luck. Pray for me. That's all I have for this episode. You now know my thoughts on whether it's more important to be kind or to be right. But I'd like to hear your thoughts. You can email me at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Find me on MeWe. If you know my number, you can call me. Shoot me a text. Whatever you may prefer. But for right now, that's all I have. As always, thank you for listening. Till next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you heard today, visit the homepage for On The Rocks blog at onthe.rocks. Also, check out On The Rocks blog podcast with Micah Hirschberger weekly on Anchor FM. If you haven't yet done so, hit subscribe to this podcast also. And you can reach Garrett Ashley Mullet with any comments, questions, or complaints at garrettmullet at gmail.com.